Grab a Bible this morning and find Psalm 15. Psalm 15. You can take your outline from the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. We're going to read Psalm 15 in just a minute. So far in our study of Psalms, this is the shortest Psalm that we've looked at. It's just five verses. And there's a few things I want you to know about Psalm 15 and the background of Psalm 15 before we jump in and talk about what David says here. First of all, you need to know that Psalm 15 is an example of entrance liturgy. So you find documents, texts, poems, songs like this all throughout Egyptian culture, uh, Mesopotamian culture, Persian culture. And the idea is that a worshiper is coming to the temple to worship. And something needs to happen before they can just walk in and worship. And so a lot of times in these sort of entrance liturgies from other cultures, other temples, other deities, the worshiper will approach, the priest or the gatekeeper or whoever at the temple will sort of be there to restrict access, and the worshiper will come and say, what do I need to do to enter? They say it more poetically than that if it's a poem or a song, but you get the idea. And the priest or the gatekeeper will respond with something like in these other examples, well, you need to go through this ritual. You need to go through this ceremony. You've got to be wearing a certain type of clothing or you've got to give some sort of offering. You've got to do something to come and to worship here at this temple. And basically, that's what you have here. You have David writing a song about who can come and what type of person can come to the presence of the Lord to worship. Tradition says that David wrote this psalm when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. I'll let you go back and check those passages out. They're moving the ark into Jerusalem. David has now solidified his king over Jerusalem. Uh, He subdued his enemies. The kingdom is united. And he realizes that they ought to bring the ark into the city of David, into their capital. And what's interesting is that the Old Testament gives some very specific instructions about moving the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is the object that is supposed to sit in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And in David's day, if you're putting the timeline together, there is no temple built yet. His son Solomon will build the temple. And so the tabernacle is pitched in Jerusalem. And he says, we're going to bring the Ark into the city. Very specific instructions in the Old Testament about how to move the Ark, which was sort of the throne of God himself. So some of these instructions say... You've got to be not only from the tribe of Levi, but you've got to be from the family of the Kohathites. If you're not from this particular family, the Kohathite family in the tribe of Levi, you can't move it. God didn't want his people looking at the ark. So in my personal Bible reading right now, I'm, I'm reading through some of the Old Testament sections that talk about the ark in Exodus. And it says when they would take down the tabernacle, there was this curtain in front of it. And these guys would walk in and they would stand backwards with their back to the ark and they would take this curtain and they would sort of back up and drape it over the ark. No one was supposed to just look at this object. It was considered so holy. They weren't supposed to touch it. If you were going to carry it, you didn't just walk up to the thing and pick it up. It had rings on the side of it, and you slid slid wooden poles made of acacia wood covered with gold through these rings, and four priests would stand on every corner holding this pole, and that's how you carried it. Very, very specific instructions. Not complicated. 
Not hard to understand, but very specific. What's interesting is when you read in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 15, the people didn't move the ark correctly. And you may remember the story of Uzzah. If this tradition is right about David moving the ark, then the death of Uzzah really stands behind Psalm 15. So the death of Uzzah is a story that goes like this if you've forgotten it. They're moving the ark. David's given the orders, bring it into Jerusalem, right? You're supposed to cover it. You're supposed to put poles in the rings and carry it. No one's supposed to touch it. You're not supposed to look at it. Well, when you read about David and the men bringing this ark into the city, it's not the tribe of Levi or the Kohathites who are doing it. It's a guy named Uzzah and his brother Ahio. And they don't have it covered. It never mentions anything about a covering over the ark. And they certainly aren't using the poles that they're supposed to use to carry the ark. They just take the thing and they put it on the back of a cart and the cart is pulled by oxen. Maybe they said it's heavy. This is how you work smarter, not harder. Put it on the, on the cart and we just roll it right in. Maybe they said it will look better in the, the, the parade, right? Because it was a big deal going on when they brought this thing in. In fact, you can go back and read the verses I gave you in uh, Samuel and Chronicles, it says in the text that David got the Levites together, he did get the Levites together, and he told them they were supposed to sing and worship and is this big deal? So maybe they're sort of thinking this will, this will look better. Maybe they had the cart decorated, I don't know. But they put it on a cart. And Ahio apparently is driving the cart and his brother Uzzah is sort of walking beside it this most holy object in Israel. And for whatever reason, Ahio takes this cart and he drives the cart right through the mud. So the holiest object in Israel, not supposed to look at it, not supposed to touch it, not supposed to carry it on a cart, but he does it and he sloshes right through the mud and the oxen stumble and the cart starts to stumble and poor Uzzah is back there And he does what probably most of us would do. He just puts his hand out to hold the thing up on the cart. And when he touches it, the Bible says that the Lord burst out against him and he dies. Well, you read that story and you say, man, it it sounds like God just blew a fuse. Like he just lost his temper. But when you go back and you think about all the instructions God had given the people about how to carry the ark and you realize... They didn't do it this way. They didn't do it this way. They didn't have the poles. They didn't have the covering. They didn't have the priest. They didn't have the Kohathites. They didn't have any of it. And it was only this last straw where Uzzah reaches out his hand and he touches the one thing that they were not supposed to touch and God burst out against him. What's interesting is that the Bible says when David saw Uzzah laying dead in the mud, David got angry. Not with Uzzah, but with God. David gets mad at God because maybe in David's mind he's thinking, look, we're trying to do this thing. We're trying to worship you and celebrate you as the God of Israel. We're bringing your ark in and we make one little mistake. One little thing happens. The oxen stumbled. It wasn't even our fault. You just burst out in anger. And shockingly, David doesn't even bring the ark into Jerusalem. He just sort of calls the whole thing off. And it took David a while to realize what God was trying to teach him. And God was trying to teach David a very important lesson that David needed to know as king, that his children needed to know as future kings, and that we need to know. And the lesson is this. 
The God of the Bible is holy, and he requires his people to be holy. And he's really serious about that. If there is anything in all of the universe, in all of creation, anything that God takes seriously, it's his own holiness. And it's the holiness he demands from his people. There's a connection, some Jewish scholars say, between Psalm 15 and the Torah. In fact, when you read through Psalm 15, we'll read it in just a minute, there's 11 different injunctions or commands that this is what you're supposed to do. And Jewish scholars say that those 11 ideas in Psalm 15 summarize all 613 commands found in the Torah, in the law of God. You read through the Old Testament, you read the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, 613 different commands. And Jewish scholars say, you can read Psalm 15 and find all of them in there somewhere. There's a a connection from Psalm 15 to all of those other commands some way, somehow. And I think that makes sense if you're going to put Psalm 15 in line with David bringing the ark to Jerusalem and Uzzah dying. Because listen, the law... The Torah is designed to do one thing above all else. It's designed to show us the holiness of God and to detail for us the holiness that God requires from his people. That's the point of the law. So here's David. He just learned a very painful lesson about the holiness of God. And he's running back through his mind. He's angry with God at first, but he starts thinking. He says, you know what? We we didn't do it the way God told us to do it. It was pretty clear. The Kohathites, they have to move it. It's got to be from the tribe of Levi from this family. And they can't put it on an ark. They're supposed to use the poles and it's supposed to be covered. And no one's supposed to touch it. And he's thinking about the law. And he's thinking about God's holiness. And he sits down and he writes Psalm 15. You see the note up in the top, a Psalm of David. And there's a connection to these events that's taking place. And, just drawing all this together, it makes sense that this is entrance liturgy. Because David just had a pretty shocking experience. They thought they were going to come into the presence of the Lord to worship. And they had this rude awakening that said, not like that you're not. You're not coming in if you're going to ignore my holiness and not even going to consider the holiness that I require of my people. All of these things are on David's mind. And he starts off with a question. Look at this question. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent who shall dwell on your holy hill and immediately the answer is not Uzzah not Ahio not this crew that was moving the ark in some sort of parade initially who can come into your presence what kind of person that's what David's talking about here in Psalm 15 so let's read it Just five verses. You follow along as I read. It says, A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us when we come casually and flippantly and lightly into your presence. Father, remind us today that as we gather for worship, you are the same God that we read about in the Old Testament. You do not, have not, will not change. And forgive us when we approach you as as if it's something that we're entitled to. As if it's something that you owe us. Remind us of the severity and the seriousness of coming before your throne. Remind us of your holiness this morning. Father, help us to see ourselves as we truly are, not as holy people, but as sinful people. Father, and help us to understand clearly today all that you have done to bring us into your presence. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you like to outline the psalm, you want to know the structure of it, it's really simple. Verse 1 is the introduction, it's a question. Who will sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy, there's a reminder there, your holy hill? The rest of the psalm is the answer. This is the kind of person. Who can come, who can enter, who can come before the Lord and worship? This is the kind of person who is worthy. And so we're going to ask this question and then we're going to look at the answers. But before I give you the actual answers, I I do want to emphasize this word in verse 1, holy. He throws that in, and it's not just a coincidental word. He could have just said, who can come to your tent, who can come to your hill? But he's throwing this in to remind us so that we begin to think, we're not just coming into the presence of another person. We're not just coming into the presence of Dagon or Baal or Asherah. We're coming into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. Like I said, David just had this experience with Uzzah where he's reminded up front, right in front of his face, that God is holy. And he mentions it here. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? When you think about holiness, let me give you some words to help you wrap your brain around that idea. Separate, other, unique, pure. You wrap all these ideas and you're starting to sort of wrap your arms around what it means for God to be holy. If you want just a small human analogy of what holiness looks like and what it means, think about the sun. I know there are billions and billions of stars and suns in the galaxies and the universe, but in our solar system, there's only one. There's nothing else like it in our solar system. There is only one sun. And it's an incredible thing. It's a life-giving thing. It gives us heat. It gives us light. It brings life We know from biology, but you also know you better not get too close to the sun, right? It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We need it. We depend on it. But if you get too close, you're going to be destroyed. And that's sort of a vague picture of what it means to talk about God being holy. He's the only one. There is no one else like him. No one in the same category as him. Nobody remotely approaches him. And he's good and he's necessary and we depend on him. He's the only one that gives life. But you better be careful. Because just like the sun being holy and the the space around the sun sort of becomes holy, when you come into the presence of God, you're coming into dangerous territory if you're not holy. 
And so just keep this in your mind as we're saying, who can come into the presence of the Lord? Who can sojourn in His tent? Who can dwell on His holy hill? We're talking about the Lord, Yahweh, who is holy, holy, holy. There's no small little g God we're talking about, but the one true and living God. Who can come? David gives us several answers. The first thing he says is one who lives a blameless life. We can just pretty much forget the rest of the list and say, well, we're all disqualified. A blameless life. Verse 2. He who walks blamelessly. A lot of times in the Bible you read about somebody's walk. Somebody who walks with God. I think of Enoch in the early chapters of Genesis where it says that Enoch was a man who walked with God. You understand when you read that, that's a poetic way of saying that Enoch's life was centered around God. It's not saying they enjoyed long walks on the beach every evening. That was their favorite thing to do. What it's saying is his life was completely committed to God and centered on God and focused on God. That's his walk. And David says, who can come into the presence of the Lord? Qualification one, the person whose walk, whose life is without any blame. Number two, one who controls the tongue. Your life needs to be blameless. You've got to control your tongue. Verse two and three talks about speaking the truth in your heart and not slandering with your tongue. And I want you to notice a couple of things in those verses. The end of two and the beginning of three. Speaking the truth in your heart and not slandering with your tongue. First of all, there's a positive and a negative aspect there, right, to how we use speech. Positively, you gotta be somebody who speaks the truth. Negatively, somebody who doesn't use words to hurt other people. So there's a positive and a negative. You need to use words this way and you need to not use them this way. Sometimes we think about our speech and we say, well, it's not like I told a lie. It's not like I broke the command, but did you use your words the way you're supposed to? There's more than just sins of commission where you do things that God says not to do. There's also sins of omission where you don't do things that God says to do. So there's a positive and a negative here. Speaks the truth, doesn't use words to hurt. There's also an internal-external dynamic here to words, right? Sometimes we think of words as only what comes out of our mouth. But David talks about speaking the truth where? In your heart. David understands that your words are not just the things and the sounds and the vibrations that your vocal cords make, but it's also your thoughts. The things that you allow to run through your brain. Those are your words. And David talks about you need to control your words, not just in what comes out of your mouth, but what's running through your brain. There's this positive and a negative dynamic here. There's this internal-external dynamic here. Listen, when you think about this idea, the one who controls the tongue, I think this issue is so big. I think this is the reason. When Isaiah and Isaiah 6 stood before the Lord in the temple, the holy, holy, holy God, who's high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and the thresholds of the temple were shaken. And Isaiah sees that. What does he say? Woe is me. I am lost. What comes next? I am a man of unclean lips. I don't think Isaiah is just trying to tell us I said a bad word today. 
I think he's saying the things that come out of my mouth and the things that roll around in my head are not right. And when I find myself in the presence of the Holy One, I realize that's a problem. Who can come before God? You live a blameless life. You control your tongue. Number three, you have right relationships. This is the rest of verse three and and the first part of verse four. Talks about not doing evil to your neighbor. Talks about not taking up a reproach against your friend. Talks about despising a vile person. And it talks about honoring those who fear the Lord. Four categories of people there. Your neighbor, your friend, vile people, and people who fear the Lord. And in each of those situations, you need to have the right kind of response. Some of those people you need to honor. Some of those people you need to despise. Some of those people you need to do good to. Some of those people you need to refrain from doing evil to. But what he's saying is this. We forget this. Your relationship with God is not just a vertical thing. Like we think, well, it's between me and God. It's none of your business. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's me and God. And David is saying, eh, not exactly. Your relationship with God does have a vertical dimension between you and him, but it also has a horizontal dimension between you and other people. And if your relationships with other people aren't what they're supposed to be, don't fool yourself into thinking your relationship with God is what it's supposed to be. It goes vertical, you and God, but it's also horizontal. And David says, if you're going to come before God to worship, your relationships with other people need to be right. Number four, someone who has integrity. Meaning they're whole, they're complete, they are who they say they are, they're consistent. Verse four talks about swearing to your own hurt and not changing. It's the idea that you've given your word on something And for whatever reason, maybe circumstances have changed, maybe something unforeseen happened, but you keeping your word is now going to cost you. Are you going to go back on it? Are you going to swear to your own hurt? You're going to keep your word no matter what. David says, if you're going to come before the Lord, you've got to be a person of integrity. You can't be this one day and something else the next day. You've got to be consistent. Lastly, this is a big one for our culture. Who can come before the Lord? One who does not worship money. Verse 5 talks about charging interest and taking bribes. In the Old Testament, it was forbidden for Israelites to charge each other interest on loans. They were not allowed to do that. And they were never allowed to take a bribe. Never. And in the Old Testament, the root issue behind all of that is the love of money, the worship of money. Jesus knew that this was an issue. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do we have it up on the screen? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. If you're going to come before the Lord, you can't come if you're really serving money. It's pretty simple. Paul understood this. Look what he told Timothy. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. We, we quote that so badly. We talk about money being the root of all evil. It's not what it says. It says the love of money is a root of all different kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they pierced themselves with many pangs. This is what David is saying here in Psalm 15. If you love money, you can't love God. 
This is an either-or deal. It's not a both-and. You're going to have to pick. Where does your allegiance lie? I read a quote this week. I was watching a video. The video was actually had something to do with China's currency and, you know, all the crazy things they do with currency. And it went in and it talked at the very end about a guy named Hernando Cortez. You remember this guy from elementary school or middle school? Um, he's a Spanish conquistador, went to Mexico and uh, led to the fall of the Aztec Empire. And I, as I saw this quote, I did some reading on him. Apparently, this is not a very nice guy. Okay? By all accounts, this is not the nicest guy that ever crossed the ocean and came to the New World. But at times, he was pretty honest. And here's what Mr. Cortez said about money. He said, me and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart that can only be cured with gold. There you have it. We serve money. That's what he's saying. At least he's honest about it. You understand, you live in a culture that believes, just like Cortez, that gold will solve all our problems. Maybe you don't have to have as big a pile as the next guy, but if you just had a little more than you have now, it would be better. We may not be so brash as Cortez to say, I suffer from a disease that can only be fixed with a big bank account. But deep down, most of us believe this idea, you know, if I just had a little bit more, if I could just get sort of one more level up in life, if I just little more money, and Jesus is warning you about that, and Paul is warning you about that, and David is warning you about that, saying it cannot be both. It's God or it's money, either or. And so you back up from Psalm 15, and we ask this question. Who may approach the Lord? Well, you've got to have a blameless life. You have to control your tongue, positively, negatively, internally, externally. You've got to have right relationships with all the people in your life. You have to be a person of integrity who doesn't worship money. That's it. You do that, you can come to church. I don't know about you, but I read Psalm 15 and I get a little bit uneasy. In fact, I get more than a little bit uneasy. Because I start to read about this passage as talking about the holy God and the holiness he requires of his people. And I step back from Psalm 15 and I say, you know what? It's not me. I hate to let you down and disappoint you that this is not a description of your pastor, but it's not. It's not even close. And it's not you either. And so you step back and you say, well, if you have to be like that to worship the Lord, then, I mean, what gifts? What's the point? Here's a few thoughts. What about the person who doesn't match this description? How do sinful people approach the holy, holy, holy Lord? First of all, in the Old Covenant, sinners had to offer sacrifices before they could approach the Lord. As an example, you can think about the Passover. Before Israel was allowed to leave Egypt and to go into the wilderness, and you remember, let my people go that they may worship me, serve me in the wilderness. Before they could go worship God, there had to be a sacrifice, and that happened on the night of the Passover. God said to the people, in effect, the firstborn belong to me. I have a rightful claim on them because of you and your sin. But if you don't want them to die and you would like to come out and approach me in worship, a sacrifice has got to be offered. This is the same thing we read about on the Day of Atonement, right? Leviticus 16, 
Once a year, the high priest would like to make intercession for the people, but before he can do that, a sacrifice has to be made so that he, a sinner, can approach the Lord on behalf of the people. So a sacrifice had to be offered. These sacrifices reminded the worshiper that they needed a substitute. Get this in your brain. This is important. Why did they offer these sacrifices? It was a reminder to the worshiper that they needed a substitute. Let's go all the way back to Eden, Genesis 3. God had told Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of this tree, you will die. On the day, you will die. Did they die that day? Well, spiritually. No, they didn't. They lived. They had kids. They built homes. They had grandkids. Great-grandkids. What gives? Did God just completely forget what he told them? No. At the end of Genesis 3, we read, God looks at Adam and Eve and their pitiful clothes made of leaves, and he says, that's not going to cut it. And an animal dies so that they can be clothed. And he's teaching his people right out of the gate. Yes, I've made this promise that I'm going to send somebody to rescue you, but you've got to understand in the meantime, you need a substitute. That death sentence that I placed on you, I'm not just forgetting about that. A substitute must die. Think about Abraham and his son Isaac when God calls him up Mount Moriah. It's the same thing that God tells his people in the Exodus later when he says, I have a claim on the firstborn because of your transgression against me. He says to Abraham, I have a claim on your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, he's mine. Go up the hill, and I'm calling in the debt. So go up the hill. Does God just forget about the debt once they get to the top? No. A substitute dies so that Isaac can live. We're not just forgetting about the debt, but I'm teaching you that a substitute can pay your debt. God's teaching them You need a substitute. All of these sacrifices, day after day after day after day at the tabernacle, then at the temple, reminding the people, our God is holy and we are not holy. And a sacrifice and a substitute has to be offered if we're going to approach him. There's no other way. Somebody has got to take our place, pointing the people forward to the promise of Isaiah. Look what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. We sang about that this morning. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah is saying this to the people. Look, all these sacrifices we've been offering, let's be real. Let's be honest for a minute. Lambs don't take the place of people. Goats can't die to pay the debts of humans. Someday, 
God's going to send someone, this servant of Isaiah 53, who's going to be a sacrifice, who's going to die as a substitute. We're not just canceling the debt. Someone's going to come to pay the debt. You know Isaiah 53 points us to Jesus, which reminds us of this. In the new covenant, sinners must approach the Lord through faith in Jesus. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one who became like us so that he could pay our debt. Listen to these verses. I think I have three of them from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. How can you come to the Lord? The question of Psalm 15 says. And what does Jesus say? I'm the door. The only way is for you to come through me. Look what he says in the very next chapter, chapter 11. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. You want to live in the presence of the Lord? You want to dwell on his holy hill? There's only one way. You've got to come through Jesus. John 14, 6, the third one. Just a few I pulled from the Gospel of John. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to come into God's presence as a worshiper, it must be through Jesus. It must be. Which reminds us of this last idea. Jesus dwelt with sinners so that sinners could dwell with the Lord. You go back and look at John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived among us. And then you flip to the end of your Bible and you look at Revelation 21 and it says, the dwelling place of God will be with man. They will dwell with God and he will be with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. It's possible because the sacrifice was made. The substitute died. So you look at Psalm 15. It's not a complicated psalm. And I'll just say this. When David wrote it, this is a forward-looking song. David saying, who can come into the presence of the Lord? Who can do it? We tried it. It wasn't possible because of his, his holiness and our sin. And the deal with Uzzah reminded everybody, you can't just waltz into his presence. Who can come? And he basically says, we need someone perfect. We can't do it. We're waiting for the offspring of the woman to come. We're waiting for the offspring of Abraham to come. We're waiting from the line of the tribe of Judah to come. We're waiting. We're waiting. You and I look at Psalm 15, and there's a little bit of a different answer to the question. Not exactly different, but fuller. And we look at this psalm, and we look at the opening question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? You can give David's answer. Or you can say, Jesus. That's who. And if you say Jesus, you can add on to that. Any sinner who acknowledges their sin before a holy God entrusts in the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. If you acknowledge your sin and you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, the answer is you can sojourn with the Lord. You can dwell in his tent. You can come before him in worship with boldness and confidence, not because you've somehow met the requirements of Psalm 15, but because Jesus, the Messiah, met them for you. And he died your death as your substitute. Let me pray for you.
Father, we're grateful for your word. And Father, we are driven to the cross this morning. All of our hope, all all of our security is found in Jesus and his life of perfect obedience and his substitutionary death on the cross. Father, help us to remember when we come before you in prayer, in song, to listen to your word, our only hope is to come through Jesus. Father, I pray for folks in the room who are trying so hard to be holy and so hard to be good so that they can earn an audience with you, that they can earn a place in your kingdom. And I pray that as they look at this summary of your law, that they would see the futility in that, that they have not done it and they will not be able to do it. And I pray that they would run to Jesus who did it for us. Father, be honored as we sing your praises, as we sing about your holiness, and help us to be mindful of the fact that we approach your throne only through the death and the resurrection of your son. We pray in his name. Amen.